right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of I Can Steal That, the true crime podcast that's never too heavy. I'm your host, Pete Stegmeyer. Uh, first of all, welcome to all our new listeners. Uh, we've seen a huge jump over the past couple of months. So if you're here brand new, thank you so much. If you're here from Heist Podcast, like that was an amazing podcast. Hopefully you, you guys like this one as much. Um, and I want to address the elephant in the room. It's been way too long since I've... Uh, put out an episode it's been like since october uh it's been a crazy past few months uh first of all my book heist is officially out in stores and hit the amazon and barnes and noble bestseller list so thank you guys so much for making that possible uh it's been super cool i got to do a signing at a mystery bookshop in new york it was super fun so thank you guys for making that possible uh, i've been doing a lot of traveling recorded my debut stand-up comedy album uh and Lately, I have been in the process of moving to Nashville. I'm in Nashville, but it's going to be like a couple of weeks until I'm like properly settled. So it's been a little chaotic. I appreciate you guys sticking with me and I am ready to start putting out uh, episodes more regularly again. So I'm very excited about that. Thank you guys for all of your support. Um, in light of that move news, though, I, I wanted to do an episode that was like kind of a goodbye letter to New York. Uh, it's something like really special that I've wanted to do for a really long time. So today we are going to be talking about my favorite criminal of all time, the king of gentlemen bank robbers, George Leonidas Leslie. And to be talking about this today, uh, we have a great guest. He is a comic here in Nashville. Uh, you've probably seen him on TMZ and he's performed all over. Evan Burke, how's it going? Oh, great. Thanks for thanks for having me here and welcome to Nashville. Thank you. I'm I'm excited about this. I, I'm very much looking forward to like getting I call them the Nashville shirts where they're like the button ups with like the things on the shoulders. Like I really, really want to start getting into that. Yeah, you got to get those. And uh, oh, I thought you were talking about the shirts that say like smash on them. You know, like, oh, I could do that as well. Like, yeah, I, Vegas. I, I grew up in like a small town called Janesville and they called it Janes Vegas. I feel yeah. like Nash Vegas is like more appropriate though. I would imagine so. Because our, our town so. sucked and yeah. this town does not suck. Yeah. A lot going on down here. I don't know if your town had a, you know, the, the, the drinking, the drinking bikes, you know what I mean? We did not have drinking bikes, but it was only because they don't like exercise. Right. There are like lots of bars though. Yeah. That's great. Well, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, of course. I'm excited about this one. This, uh, uh, like I said during the intro, is probably the coolest criminal of all time. Uh, certainly one of my favorites because it's from like my favorite like time period for crime as well. Like kind of the golden age of crime, uh, like gangs of New York era. I love how you have a favorite like criminal. Like that's the coolest thing. Like you saying that made me think like, do I have a favorite criminal? Like off the top of my head. <laughs> john q you know what i mean i'm like yeah i'm just trying to get a heart for his son you know like yeah i i, I, I do whatever he's got to do you know i didn't i never thought like do i have a favorite criminal yeah this this guy is like probably the closest to like a real life supervillain. like there's another guy we're gonna do eventually uh named adam worth who was like the real life inspiration for dr moriarty and that guy is also up there, same time period, but he was like classier because he was British. Yeah. But um, yeah, like this is just like such a fun, like these are like proper villains and yeah. that's what kind of makes it fun. I'm ready to learn. All right. So, so George Leslie's um, 
his his story takes place during one of the most exciting times in New York's history. Um, like I said before, true golden age of crime right after the Civil War, uh, where criminals like Marm Mandelbaum were giant personalities, and life was not unlike what you'd see in gangs of New York. Like even uh, like my last apartment was a couple blocks from like Five Points, and you could see like the tavern and like the Dead Rabbit and stuff like that. Right. And this is kind of where all of that is happening. Okay. And there's like just a huge hustle and bustle because there's so many people coming in and out and it's just like the perfect breeding grounds for like huge criminal enterprises. And who's making up like what, what groups of people are making up New York at this time? Do you know? So at this time, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of immigrants as far as uh, like particularly Irish, um, a lot of like Germans uh, and things like that. Um, like quite a few Dutch, obviously, because at this point, like um, New York is New York, but it had recently been like New Amsterdam and things like that. And this is kind of still where a lot of that settlement had been, had been taking place. But Mm -hmm. this is also the area during like the birth of the country where like George Washington had his farewell address and uh, his dinner at the, um, I'm blanking on the name of the bar. Um, I've been to that bar a lot, Um, but it's, it's, it's not the dead rat. No, not the, no, no. Francis Tavern. Okay, uh, Francis yeah. Tavern is, okay. is where that was. And that that's actually super cool. If you're in New York and you're in the financial district, kind of like by wall street, where all this is, you can actually go to that bar and you can see, like they have a list of all of the stuff that got consumed that night. Is that, and, is that, the, is that the, the street with all the cobblestone down there near what's that street called? Uh, Stone street. Yeah. Stone street. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, it's right out there. Um, and it's, it's a really cool area. Like you can, you really get the sense that the vibe hasn't changed much. Right. And, um, so it's, it's a really interesting like time capsule. And then you can like walk and see like the stock exchange or, uh, like Clinton castle where like the, the batteries were, were placed against like troops for, um, like revolutionary and like 1812 wars and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really neat. Yeah. And so Leslie was born in 1842, which is the same year that construction began on the Brooklyn Bridge. 1842. Um, wow. 1842. And um, he was actually born in England and then moved to New York City with his parents at the age of two. After a few years in New York, uh, his family decided to move to Cincinnati, uh, where his father opened a brewery and the family actually grew to be quite wealthy. Uh, wow, that's the original hipster. He's like, you know what? I've done <laughs> our time in the city. Let's go. Let's go to Cincinnati. I hear there's a cool vibe there. Let's open up. We'll, we'll serve some IPAs. Exactly. And he like unironically rode one of those giant unicycles to do it. Oh man, I bet he. Yeah, I bet he was like, listen, we're not we're not doing well here. You know where we're going to be the coolest people? Cincinnati. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, he was just getting, they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. Like they, they walked. So Harambe could, could run. And now the Bengals are in the Super Bowl. I know Joe Burrow. It's destiny. Man's destiny. And I, I'm a fan of Joe Burrow. I think, I think he's really fun. Oh yeah. We're all rooting for the Bengals. Yeah. I, I think you have to like, yeah. Like I, I, I think like Cooper cup is like really good. Uh, and Matt Stafford, I feel bad because he spent like so long on the Lions, but I, I really want to see the Bengals win. Matt Stafford is about to have his Matt Ryan moment. Ooh, <laughs> so long they get to the Super Bowl, and you'll never get there again. 
that's fair. That's fair. I, I'm a Packers fan, so I I feel that pain. Yeah, I I thought we had it all in 2011. Too close to the sun. So they're in Cincinnati. They are in Cincinnati, and his uh, his dad opens up a brewery, and the family becomes very rich. And as the American Civil War kicks off, uh, George gets drafted into the army, but his parents paid three hundred dollars to get him exempted from service. So not much has changed. <laughs> and this actually makes George the subject of a fair amount of criticism. Like people like call him out for being like a cowardly draft dodger. Um, but uh, Les- uh, George Leonidas Leslie, he doesn't care. He's undeterred. He goes to college at the university of Cincinnati and graduates at the top of his class with a degree in architecture. And after school, he opens up his own architectural firm in Cincinnati and is doing pretty well. He's like he's enjoying like modest success until his parents die in 1867. Mm. Uh, so following their passing, George decides that maybe Ohio is not the booming metropolis that you know it is today. <laughs> and, he, had, uh, he, had, he had that he had that Ohio glass ceiling. He did. He he hit the Ohio glass ceiling, and he decides to sell the family home the brewery and his architectural firm. And he goes back to New York city. Classic. Classic. Like total Let, mid. Yeah. Sitcom begins. Exactly. Big old city. <laughs> and he finds a city that's like rampant with crime and corrupt politicians. Like guys like boss hog are, you know, really running the show here. And more often than not, uh, the city is run by gangs more so than elected officials. Uh, like Boss Tweed was another one. And that was that was actually a bar I did trivia in for a long time. And mm-hmm. Boss Tweed was like, first of all, that bar was disgusting. And they got shut down because like a 16-year-old got locked in the bathroom overnight. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, like the, the real Boss Tweed was like similar vibes. Right. And uh, so, so George, like he sees that crime is just going gangbusters down here and he wastes no time, like start going to like criminal open mics and like really starting to, to, to get in with like the criminal underground. So he ends up forming the Leslie gang. Mm. And this is, this is a crew of like very highly skilled thieves and they all have pretty good names. Um, so some of the thieves in his crew are Jimmy Hope, Banjo Pete Emerson, uh, John Leary, which is like a cool name in and of itself. And most famously, Tom Draper, who everybody called Shang Draper. Mm. Shang. Shang. And there's, you best believe there's a story on how he got that nickname. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he, he earned that nickname for his proclivity Shanghaiing people, mm. uh, which usually consisted of him kidnapping people to serve as sailors usually by drugging them or getting them drunk uh, or sometimes just using flat out violence. And then these guys would like wake up on boats and like sailor uniforms and be like, you're part of the crew now. And he did this a lot. <laughs> like so much that they give him a nickname for it. Shang. Yeah. Tom Shang Draper. And like, he's a, he's a dangerous dude. What makes him so dangerous? Uh, well, besides his proclivity for Shanghaiing people, he was just very quick to violence. He he just didn't care. Yeah. Um, and that like that definitely 
is sometimes like something you want in like, you know, if you want like your barbarian in your D and D party, but like, you don't like, eventually it's going to go wrong. Like there's always, it's always like that guy in like the heist movie too, that like shoots the cop too early or does whatever. And that's, that's uh Shang Draper. Okay. He's the he's the hothead. Mm-hmm. But Leslie's most valuable partner was none other than Frederica Marm Mandelbaum. Mm, that's a name. It, that is a, a name. That's a shortstop right there. She, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she like Marm Mandelbaum. I'm going to do her own episode one day. She is one of my favorite figures from history. She was a Prussian woman who happened to be one of New York's most infamous and prolific fences. So basically as any, anybody that stole stuff in New York would typically come to Marm to sell it. And then Mm. she could, she would, you know, give the best price and be able to like sell it herself. But she also basically ran like a criminal Academy like she, she's another one that would be like just, just a pure villain, mm-hmm. and um, and like one of those people that you would see in like a Disney movie. Like you could see Mar Mandelbaum in like Mary Poppins, like running like the school of pickpockets, and you'd be like, that's not. It. But Mar, she really did that, and and she loved crime. Marm handled millions of dollars in stolen goods over multiple decades, and that's millions like in back then money. So significant amounts of of money and she worked with multiple gangs like she was she was one of those people too that didn't have a single affiliation she would work with all of the big gang families uh and everybody kind of respected her like marm was like off limits uh, because she was she was vital to the success of like the entire criminal organization of new york like samuel jackson in literally every movie exactly exactly um but she was like she just like, and she did it all. Like she would work as a fence for some gangs. She would plan uh, like heists for people sometimes. Cause she was really good at that. She would finance other people. Like if they were like, Hey, we want to like, she was like, like a criminal shark tank. Like mm-hmm. you could go to her, make your pitch and she'd be like, cool. I'll give you five, 500 bucks for 10% of your take. And she also operated a bunch of huge warehouses in Manhattan and Brooklyn and eventually expanded her criminal operations to run multiple gangs of her own, focusing usually on like uh, blackmail and confidence schemes. So there was a good chance if somebody was like out on the street drifting people, they worked directly for Marm. Uh, she ran a pickpocketing school known as Marm's Grand Street School. Mm. And that was basically where she taught little kids how to like, you know, slice like fat cat purses and steal all their coins. The stuff we need to be teaching kids. Yeah, exactly. Like Colin Core Math, get out of here. Mm-hmm. Like the only money you need, or the only numbers you need to know, are like how many times can I steal this dude's wallet? Mm-hmm. And yeah, she was a legend. And like I said, one day she's getting her own episode. Uh, one of my favorite people ever. But so all these well, people are like working together. Like there's a. It really is like comedy open mics where they all go to the bar and they're like, I got this scheme. Who wants in? I got this scheme. Who wants in? And then if it's anything like comedy open mics, they're all like, boo, my scheme's better. <laughs> yeah, they, they would do stuff like that a lot. And then also like I'm really glad you like likened it to comedy because a lot of times like these gangs would 
like they would like have like territories. So like back in the day, like in comedy, like you would have like two or three comics all doing the exact same set, but they'd have agreements like you do it, you know, east of the Mississippi, I do it west of the Mississippi, and this person mm. does like the Pacific Coast or something like that. Interesting. And so they would kind of do the same thing. It'd be like, okay, well, if you're, you know, the Bowery boys are down here. And so they kind of like did run their own like turfs and stuff like that, but they would also like work together on things like if, um, and we'll kind of get into that in a little bit. Um, but it was very collaborative and that's, I mean, that's really kind of the, I won't say the birth, but like one of the earlier instances you see of organized criminal activity. Mm-hmm. And while there was no shortage of gangs in New York, the Leslie gang quickly makes a name for themselves as the city's premier robbery crew. And most of that is due to George himself. Um, because, well, all these other people like went to the streets for their education in the school of hard knocks. George went to school for architecture and an architect is like the best person to rob a bank because they're able to look at a building and like use all that like college brain and be like, this is like where the vault's going to be. This is how you can get in and out of it. And he just had that understanding of space and dimensions and how to, how to use it. So he could figure out like where to hide in buildings so that like people wouldn't find him. Um, Brilliant. Where to and, sneak in. Yeah, exactly. And uh, like, because he was a rich man, he could just walk into these banks. Like sometimes he would like open a safety deposit or like a safe deposit box with them or an account. Um, because he was an established architect, sometimes he would call the banks up and say, excuse me, I'm trying to, you know, build a, a similar bank on, you know, first Avenue. Could I get the blueprints? And they would just give him the blueprints of the bank. Unbelievable. Yeah. It, so insane. Brilliant. And so that, that made him like, supremely like way, way better equipped to handle this. But, but he also just had like the je ne sais quoi of like a master criminal. Anyways, he would have been successful without, without his architectural knowledge, but this just made him like next level. Like that, that made him a superhero. Um, and so once, uh, like once Leslie had the bank's layout, like sometimes by pacing it himself, sometimes by getting the the blueprints from the bank itself, which is hysterical to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like he would actually go to Marm and like borrow one of her warehouses or rent one of her warehouses and build an exact replica of the vault room in her warehouse. And so he that's classic. That's classic George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Ocean's Eleven. You know, it is. That's like they got it from George Leslie. Yeah, and he he could even like sometimes he would order like the specific vault or like the safe door, mm-hmm. so that his team could practice like picking in the dark. Um, and he, they would they would do it like by daylight, then they would do it at night until eventually like his team was like so well rehearsed that they could like crack the safe open the safety deposit boxes in like complete and total darkness. Like they could do the jobs literally with their eyes closed. Mm. And this obviously allowed them to work quickly and efficiently once they were in the real vaults. Um, And Leslie had an ingenious method for getting into the vaults as well. So it wasn't just like, I know where it is. I've got the blueprints because you still have to like get into that safe door, but he built a device um, that he called his little joker. And the oh, way that little- that's, I mean, before you even describe that thing, I don't even want to 
get into the different <laughs> things that this thing could be. It you know it it could be all of those, but it's better as what it is. Like, and the little Joker like makes it sound like even more Batmany because mm-hmm. this is this is like a penguin level scheme. Yeah. Um, but the little Joker was a small tin and wire device that Leslie like invented himself. And what he would do is he would like take the dial off of a safe and then like put the little Joker in there and then put the dial back on. Um, and once the Joker was in place, um, basically every time somebody opened the safe, the combination would get imprinted onto the tin wheel. And so it would like stamp the number like 32, 41, 16, wow. like onto the thing. And then he just had to figure out what order those numbers went in. Wow. And so he was able to basically like reduce it from, you know, sometimes a million combinations to like six combinations. Brilliant. And what's like really funny about this is that he would, he would like break into a bank install the little joker device and then like leave for two weeks and then break back into the bank to get the little joker and then break in a third time to, to rob the bank. So these people, I mean, there's no security going on. No, there's not much in the way of security because everybody kind of thought like, Oh, these things are, these things are robber proof. Right. Right. No big deal. But they didn't, they didn't think that, um, they didn't think that, uh, you know, this was, this was possible. And Leslie like was just also prolifically talented at breaking and entering. And sometimes he would like the night before a heist or something like that, like he would like break into the banks, like just to like, kind of like check everything, walk through it and be like, okay, everything looks like it'll be uh, like, we're set up for success. And then he would just like leave. He would like casually break into banks. Yeah. George <laughs> Brad Pitt. I mean, that's I mean, where they're getting it from. Yeah, that's that's exactly like he's he's the archetype for for all of these things, yeah. and it's amazing because it's like like because if Danny Ocean like tried to do all the stuff like that George Leslie did, like you'd be like this guy's completely unbelievable. Like right, Danny Ocean as is is like like maybe, but like we're gonna get into like when we run the numbers, uh, like George Leslie like was so he much better. Her. Yeah, he cleaned house. He cleaned house. Yeah. Uh, and so his attention to detail and his connections with politicians, corrupt police, which also helped, you know, if the police knew not to like be on a certain block at a certain time and his network of criminals led his gang to like astonishing, like greatest of all time heights mm. um, at their apex. This is my favorite statistic in the whole, in the whole episode. Um, what do you want to guess the uh, like, how many robberies throughout the United States do you think the, the Leslie gang had a hand in at their peak across the entire United States? At their peak across the entire United States, I imagine that they had a hand in, ooh, because I don't even know how many banks there were at the time. But I want to I say, so yeah, I mean, I don't know how many banks there were. But I, I'd have to imagine it's in the 50s or 60s. 80%. His, the Leslie 80% gang, of the banks in existence at the time they robbed. 80 per, well, 80% of the bank robberies happening in the United States at their peak were pulled off by the Leslie crew. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Which is insane. Like there's 
like cable companies don't have that kind of monopoly. Right, right. That's incredible. <laughs> like some of their most notorious robberies, uh, I would be curious to like run the numbers as far as how many banks there were. Um, yeah, right. I mean, because I mean, because at this point in time, a lot of these things are going to be East Coast, Southwest. So, yeah, there's well. there's a lot of those, um, and this is after the Civil War. So like, this is this is bearing in mind like Jesse James and like the James Younger gang are going gangbusters as well, mm-hmm. and like they're prolifically robbing. Like they they did like the first armed robbery of a bank at the Clay County Savings Bank uh, in Clay County, Missouri, in Liberty, Missouri. But like even with as hard as his gang was going as like America's most notorious outlaw, you have George Leslie still doing 80% of the numbers right. and nobody knows who he is. Right. Like just a phenom. Incredible. Yeah. Elusive. It's, the elusive one. Yeah. Like Jesse James is like, can you imagine like being able to shit talk Jesse James? He's like, I'm the best bank robber in America. And he's like, that's very cute. Well, and that's what you want too, right? You want to, uh, you want to be the best at what you do and have almost no one know. That exactly. That's what you do. Exactly. He's like, it's like the Bruce Wayne Batman thing. Yeah, absolutely. And he's just, he's crushing it. Speak softly, uh, carry a big stick. Exactly. And that stick is robbing a bunch of banks. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, and some of like the, mo- the more notorious robberies that they did pull off include the Ocean National Bank heist, uh, as well as a bunch of major banks in Philadelphia, Baltimore, all over New York. Um, Leslie becomes so sought after as a bank robber that he starts selling his services as a consultant to rival gangs and helping them plan their own heists. Brilliant. So he's like, yeah. he's franchising bank robberies. Well, he, I mean, this is what he, this is what he knows from his early days where he saw, uh, what was her name running a school on how to uh, pickpocket people. I mean, yeah. And now he's the apprentice has turned into the, uh, has That's, turned into- Whatever you call it, the mint. Yeah, that's true, and I'm sure Mam or Marm is like still getting a cut of all of these. Oh yeah, you know she's. Mom. I mean, yeah. it's still a. It's a pyramid it's, scheme. It is a pyramid scheme, but like Marm's at the top, she's getting rich. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so he eventually, eventually, like this moonlighting causes a rift between Leslie and his crew. Because they start to think that he's not really providing the same level of attention and detail to their own jobs. And I agree with that to an extent, but I also kind of think like, you know, you've been robbing banks, you're pulling off 80%. Like you should be good with a little, right. Right. Little what, you, what, are they, what were they spending this money on? That is a good question. That is a really good question. Um, so at this point, I mean, what, like, were, yeah, what was there to buy at the time? You got to, you know, there was a, stuff. I mean, states, territories. Right, right, right. Land in Montana. <laughs> yeah, that's like, is this how we get like the Dutton Ranch? Yeah, right. Like there's, yeah, they're just like, they're getting like crazy amounts of money. And like they're fencing everything through Marm. And it's, it's a whole big thing. Um, and like, sometimes like we'll get into like, sometimes the robberies are not as lucrative as they would have liked, but, um, the, the gang is still preparing for what would be their largest score yet. Um, the Manhattan savings institution. And this one was like such a, like such a crown jewel that 
George and his gang spent three years doing prep work um, to get ready for this heist. And where in Manhattan was this? So this is like by the Bowery. Um, so this is, I, I want to say it's like Bowery and Grand Avenue. The building still stands and you can actually see um, like in the cinder blocks over like one of the arches, it says MSI. And that was the Manhattan Savings Institute. Okay. I, I believe it is an Apple bank now or a chase. But I bank, you gotta love it. It is. I I would love like that would be like such a cool like idea if like you had like somebody like like study these guys was like I'm gonna rob that bank and just like hitting all the classics. Mm -hmm. I I would love that. Yeah. Um, But unfortunately, like George was having problems at home as well. Um, His his personal life had started to kind of take a toll on his marriage. He had married a woman named Mary Henrietta Molly Coth. So Molly was her nickname that everybody Four called names. Her. Wow. Four names. That's Mary a- Henrietta Coth, um, known to her friends as Molly, who was 15 when they met at the boarding house that Molly's mother owned in Philadelphia while Leslie was like staying there. Um, so like during like there was a period of time um presumably between like Cincinnati and New York, where he was like traveling East hung out in Philadelphia for a little bit. And that's where he meets uh, Molly's mother at this um, boarding house. And he decides to marry this 15 year old. I mean, not great, different time, but still not great. Yeah. I mean, still definitely not great. (laughs) Yeah. But I, I feel like at that time, like 15 is like, what was the life expected? Well, I guess the civil war kind of skewed that a little bit, but you know what? We're not, we're not even diving into it. It's we're not going to dive into, into that it. at all. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> we'll let 1883 handle that. Yeah, exactly. That's, I like that. Um, so Molly was largely unaware of his life and crime early in the relationship. Like he would just kind of like take off and then like come back with like big bags of money. <laughs> um, but when she, uh, when she did eventually find out that her husband was America's top thief, uh, she was all for it. She was like, yeah, I love the money. Uh, this is super cool. I'm here for it. And it probably turned her on a little bit. Yeah. I mean, full on Carmela Soprano out here, you know, yeah. you know, where do you want us to hide it? You know, do you tell me when we got to move some stuff? Exactly. Like even Skylar, like from Breaking Bad, like wasn't that pissed off. Like once she saw the pallet of cash. Right. How could you be? Yeah. And so he's, he's bringing her that pallet of cash. So she's like, okay, like let's, let's do this. Um, but Molly still did have doubts about her marriage in general and was unhappy that he seemed to spend so much time and money on other women. So that's where the money was going. Okay. So she's like, I don't care if you're breaking into banks, just, you know, come home to me. In time, if you're spending money on a woman. Yeah. That's like not, you're not buying them clothes. Exactly. You're you're paying them to take them off. Exactly. And so basically like she starts to have these doubts, but then on May 10th, uh 1878, uh George takes his wife out uh like on a date and he like kind of panics and he's like, "Look, I'm worried that my gang is going to assassinate me." And he gives her a bunch of money and takes off and she never sees him again. Wow. Yeah. Could you imagine like 
going to like the Olive Garden and then at the end of it being like, I think my gang's going to make me disappear. Here's a bunch of money and then like toodaloo and disappearing. I mean, wow. I mean, as long as there's a lot of money there, I'd be like, all right, well, it's been fun. <laughs> that's that's fair. I guess the breadsticks are unlimited. The good times are not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so he just dips. He he does dip. Um, but unfortunately, he was also telling the truth. Okay. Oh wow. So really, there was. Yeah. So he, um, about a month later, on June fourth, eighteen seventy eight, Leslie's body is actually found in a bush at Tramps Rock uh, in Yonkers. Mm. and there's a silver handle or a silver revolver and a top hat next to the body. And he had multiple gunshots uh, to the back of his head. Um, But it was clear, like even, even like by their like CSI capabilities at the time that his body had been dumped there. And And, And so who, who do they think did this? So they still think that it was his gang. Yeah, and so the murder never officially gets solved. Um, but everybody is pretty like ninety-nine percent sure uh that the killer was none other than Tom Shang Draper himself. Shang. Shang I know you can't the loose the loose cannon, he's he's the Robert Ford. Of, Every time I hear Shang, I want to go, dang, Shang. <laughs> I, I like it. And and it's almost almost a hundred percent proven that one of the women that Leslie had been spending his time and money on was Shang's wife, which, which is just dumb. You don't like a, I, I say it all the time. Like number one rule on this podcast is commit one crime at a time. So if you're going to rob banks, don't be committing adultery because a pissed off girlfriend knows how to dial nine one one. Yeah, but Shang, Shang's got to figure his thing out. You know what I mean? Yeah, but you also never sleep with the loose cannon's wife. Like that's true. That's true. That is just never good advice. Any cannon's wife. Yeah, any any cannon, unless it's like one of those like decorative ones over the waterfront in like Baltimore. Where like here's where we shot at the British. Like if if that thing's married, go nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's Tom Draper, don't don't sleep with his wife. Mm-mm, do not. Do not. So did uh, so that so he never gets held accountable for this. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Like the police are basically never like a not able to and b not not really interested in solving this. There's like oh rich dead body in uh, in Yonkers. Like whatever. Like you find a body in the bush. Like we've all seen a body in the bush. And they're so they were able to identify the body. And, Correct. And so they were probably stoked. They're like, "Oh, this guy's been robbing all of our banks. We've been chasing him for so long." Yeah, they saw it as a as a gift from above. A hundred percent. Like you're the like you're the guy on like the bank robbery career. You're like, "Holy shit, my workload just went down by eighty percent nationally." Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's divine. Yeah, that's so he had he was he had been shot in the head. No yes. evidence around. Correct. Who found him? Uh, I think just a kid that would grow up to have a lot of troubles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A kid who, uh, you know, his great, great, great grandson is Martin Screlly. So <laughs> <laughs> a lot of issues there. 
oh my god that's like one day like this guy's great great grandson is going to be the only person to listen to the new wu-tang and mm-hmm. everyone's like gonna hate him i could see that that's now, were they ever able to so were they ever able to recover his fortune so what so his 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 wife she runs off with the money what what kind of life does she live do we know so they don't really um i, I haven't really found anything about that mm-hmm. um presumably like she just spent her money and like lived pretty well because um everything that i saw indicated that he gave her like like a big chunk of money okay um, but at the time like who knows if she thought that he was just like you know trying to ghost her like morally right um, and so a lot of that doesn't really get um get discovered um but one thing that i think is interesting is just a few months after leslie's murder the leslie gang they kept the name because they're they're sentimental uh right you have to yeah, they decided they're like, hey, we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna pull off this heist, like the one that he had spent like three years like planning at the Manhattan okay. Savings Institute, and it's their biggest heist yet. Uh, they stole two and a half million dollars. And at that point in time, do we know what that would convert to at this point in time? Um, I can actually look that up for you right now. I mean, I would imagine at this point that would be fifteen to seventeen million and i'm just guessing i don't I have no idea that's you know what i feel like that's uh let's see here i'm pulling up the inflation calculator right now is this on google you're on it is so we are gonna say uh two point or two five zero 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 Okay. $69 million. $69 million. That's unbelievable. It's, it's incredible. Um, unfortunately, like while the gang had followed Leslie's plans for the heist, um, most of like what they didn't account for was the contents of the vault. So like everything, like Leslie's homework was like immaculate. They, mm-hmm. they got in no issues, easy peasy. Um, but unfortunately for them, most of the money that they had stolen came in the form of registered bonds, um, meant that they were worthless to anybody, but the specified bond holder. So that was like, kind of like the first, like multi-factor authentication. Like you had to, you had to have proof of identity to lay claim to the, to the money beholden in those bonds. Right. Right. And so like most of that stuff, they weren't able to actually use. In total, they only managed um, to steal about $12,000 in actual cash and another quarter million dollars in negotiable bonds. And negotiable bonds were bonds that like, you could obviously like negotiate and weren't registered um, with a proof of identity requirement. So those like you might be able to sell. like You might not be able to get face value for them, but you could at least move those through MARM. So they probably still ended up with a couple million dollars in actually, you know what we can a uh, quarter million dollars in that money is still going to be like, I want to say like $7 million in today's money. Yeah. 6.9 million. And how, and how many ways did they have to split that up? Do you think? Uh, if I had to guess probably seven or eight. And did, um, 
And did that did, did their crew end up turning on each other at any point in time? I'm I'm sure they did. Um, I'm sure at that point that without like the central figure of uh, without you know George Leonidas Leslie like kind of uniting them, mm-hmm. I imagine that they probably broke off. Like I'm sure Tom felt like he was like the heir apparent and like decided to run his own crew, and everybody kind of split off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so at that point, you get a big payday. You go your separate ways. Everybody's got their own getaway car. Exactly. And Marm's taking her cut like before anything else gets split because as the fence, like she's, she started the whole thing. She's, uh, she's, uh, Xavier. She did. She did. She is sitting down there in like the Cerebro and just figuring out like how to like grip. She's like, NFTs are going to fucking destroy lives. (laughs) I'm going to get in on them. Marm Mandelbaum would sell NFTs. Marm Mandelbaum. Gosh, there's we need a movie, Marm. We I do, I really want a movie like with Marm Mandelbaum. Like if you'd if you would have let like Kathy Bates from like 20 years ago play Marm Mandelbaum, it would have been amazing. I think I think actually Marm Mandelbaum is in Gangs of New York. Oh, really? I believe she is or she makes a cameo. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that. Yeah, I might I might do the same. I haven't seen that movie in a while. But yeah, it's it's a it's a great movie. But that is the story of George Leonidas Leslie, the king of gentlemen bank robbers. So what's the moral of this story to you? That's you know, there's a few in here, I think. Number one, don't marry a 15-year-old. Uh mm-hmm. <laughs> number two. Uh, don't sleep with the loose cannon's wife mm-hmm. uh, slash c- only commit one crime at a time. Um, and I think maybe the, the final moral of the story is, you know what you find, you find something you love. You'll never work a day in your life. Like he liked your architecture and you found a way to turn his passion into a career. Right. Right. I mean, Hey, listen, you know, keep, keep grinding. What's what's your takeaway on this one? Oh, my takeaway on this one is sometimes we're given a gift and we think we're going to apply it in a specific way. But God has other plans. I think that's I, – I like that. That's profound. You know, so this guy, architecture, engineer – um, and you know, you'd be surprised at, at how, uh, how you end up using your, your gifts here on earth. I, I agree. I would also say another takeaway from this is if you look the part, people will give you way more information than you could ever possibly need. Like who, like who decided like, yeah, this guy seems legit. Let's give him the blueprints to the bank. Right. Multiple times. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, back in the day, I mean, that's what people were doing. You had people who just were ahead of the curve. They're like, oh, these people are dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Sliding right by. (laughs) 100%. Yeah. um, There's actually, like, they use his story. There's a really, really good uh, book where I got, like, a lot of the information from this. And then... Obviously, like research on uh, other sites and things like that, that I'll include in the show notes. But there's a great book called The Burglar's Guide to the City. Uh, and it talks about, like, especially the first chapter about, like, 
how you can like change your frame of mind, like with the architecture to like all of a sudden like recognize like dead spaces and walls and, and things like that. And like really how like people, I guess, yeah, I guess like people are more than they appear to be or mm-hmm. something like that. But it's a, it's a really interesting book. Like uh, I, I work in cybersecurity uh, like as my day job and like it's, it's a recommended book because like changing the way that you can like think about how you would attack things is, is like, you know, vitally huge. And that's, and that's when you start to actually have success is when you attack things at the right angle with the right perspective. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like my, my stand up stuff on TikTok does not do well. I talk about a cool heist. People are interested. Exactly. There you go. Well, TikTok, who knows what's going on there? <laughs> oh yeah. No, that is, that is a hundred percent a, like you should not have that. I, yeah. I, I had a TikTok account for a very short period of time. And then I'm like, oh, this is stealing all of the data. Right. So like, don't, don't do that. Cause I, I feel like if I didn't clarify that people would be like, you work in cybersecurity, you should not have a TikTok. Right. No, I just got a TikTok. I started putting all my stand up on there, getting 400 views. And then I saw someone jumping with a jump rope, getting a million. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to burn my material here. Yeah. I, I think that's fair. Not that my material is uh, all that great. I was just like, you know what, though? We're going to keep it. We're going to keep fair. it close for a bit longer. Yeah, that is that is fair. And my job is not interesting enough. Like, if I had, like, a cool, like, manual labor job where I was, like, laying bricks in a satisfying way, I'd be like, this, this would do great numbers. Right, right. But I, I don't. I just sit at a computer. Nothing wrong with that. No, no, it's good. It's good. My My ancestors are proud. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but this is super fun. I I gotta ask. Um, I'm I'm new to Nashville. I'm gonna try to make this like a new segment in yeah. uh, in every episode. If you had to steal one like crucial thing, like what would you steal if you could steal anything in the city of Nashville, and how would you do it? Mm, if I could steal anything in the city of Nashville, what would I steal? And how would I steal it? Because I haven't been to the museums or anything yet, but I'm sure there's a bunch of really cool, cool things. Yeah. I mean, if I was going to steal anything in Nashville, well, I imagine, well, you know, the, uh, the Jack Daniels distillery is in Lynchburg, Tennessee, not too far outside of Nashville. Okay. So I feel like if I were to steal anything, I'd want to go there and steal like an incredibly old bottle, like one of the original bottles of Jack Daniels that they like distilled there uh, and bottled there. And how would I steal it? Mm, well, you get out to Lynchburg, there isn't much going on. It's a small town. It's pretty much a distillery. You know, and I'd probably... I'd probably take after our boy and I'd walk in and I'd be like, Hey, can I just go to, can I just see your, your antique? Can I go to your archives? Can I go to your, you know, where do you got the old stuff? And I would just walk in and be like, Oh, I'm trying to, uh, I'm doing a project. I'm making a documentary about old distilleries and, um, and I'd love to just get some B roll of some of your oldest bottles. I like it. And while I'm filming the B-roll, you just take one. 
And then you never call that place back ever again. And then when they call you, you change your number. <laughs> I think that's rock solid. That's my answer. I was going to say, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff on Broadway, downtown Nashville. that, and, they, and I'm sure they have some cool relics like in the Johnny Cash Museum and stuff like that. But, you know. Yeah, that's the guitars Johnny Cash played, you know? I'd rather rather one of them old bottles of whiskey. I think that's fair. I think What about fair. you? I I feel like I would go to Legends. Mm-hmm. And I would just steal the bricks of the mural with Keith Urban where he's sitting at the table with Johnny Cash and be like, the audacity you had to put yourself in the center of that mural of all the country greats. And I would just like, I wouldn't even steal. I would just like move him to like outside of like Reba McIntyre. I mean, come on. I want to love somebody like you. What a banger. That's a it's, banger of a track. It's a solid song. I like it. I like Nicole Kidman. Yeah. I, I feel like I would, I would get along with Keith Urban. I just feel like maybe flying a bit close to the sun yes maybe like willie nelson doesn't even have a seat at the table no well that's because willie's out back smoking that's fair that's fair but this has been uh super super fun if anybody wants to uh find you online like do you have any uh like upcoming stuff you want to promote like what's the best way for them to find you on social media well you can find me on social media on instagram evan burke you know that's at evan B-E-R-K-E. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. Um, find me on YouTube. Um, and then if you're in Nashville, Tennessee, um, I do run a show in East Nashville at Donut Distillery, usually the second Friday of every month. We've got one coming up this Friday, February 11th. It's a free show. Um, and yeah, we do that uh, monthly. So um, that's where you can you can check me out. Nice. Awesome. Uh, if you guys are liking the show, you can follow us on all the social medias at I can steal that. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at it's Peter J Instagram, Pete Stegmeyer, Facebook, Pete Stegmeyer. Um, and I really hope you enjoy it. If you're liking the show, please like, and subscribe, uh, tell a friend about it. Leave us a iTunes rating and review. It really helps a lot. And I am super excited to be back doing this. Uh, I really missed the show and I am really looking forward to coming back very soon with another great episode. Evan, thank you so much. This is super fun. Thanks for having me. Of course. Of course. Well, this has been, I can steal that. We'll be back with another episode very soon.